Hello everyone and welcome to another in our series of irregular and illogical minisodes, where one of our regular hosts takes a slight detour from our business of profiling obscure islands, archipelagos and oblasts to talk about something a little bit more specific. In this edition, led by Joe, we explore literally the idea of an exclave and was inspired by Joe himself wandering into one not too long ago. If you're not familiar with the concept of an exclave, well, this episode should straighten you out. I know that some of you will be eagerly awaiting the start of season 4 when we will be returning to our regularly scheduled balloon excursions, and I'm delighted to say that it's just around the corner. You can expect season 4 episode 1 to arrive in your feed within the next couple weeks. For now though, on with the show. I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast has heard of the term enclave. That's most used to describe a country or a territory that's completely surrounded by another country. We've profiled a few already in 80 days, such as tiny San Marino, cut off in the middle of Italy, and landlocked Lesotho, which pops a hole in the silhouette of South Africa. The Gambia too is an enclave surrounded entirely by Senegal, albeit with access to the sea. We also use the term more generally or metaphorically, like describing Patagonia, as a Welsh-speaking enclave in South America. In this mini-sode, my first attempt at taking the narrative reins, I want to talk about the opposite concept, an exclave, a bit of a country sandwiched awkwardly like a trap bubble within the borders of another country. These anomalies are more common than you'd think. I recommend zooming in on the Dutch-Belgian border, for instance. But pretty alien to people from islands where the sea makes pretty clear borders. Today I'm going to focus on the ones that were in my neighbourhood until recently. This minisode, like all good stories, comes in two parts. Part 1 Deutschland, Deutschland in Alice I stumbled on the concept of exclaves in Switzerland almost completely by accident while I was living there. One evening, more than two years ago, I was going to the city of Schaffhausen, just north of Zurich to attend a very unexpected event. Would you like to hazard a guess at what it was? Hmm, Switzerland. Uh, yodeling festival? Chocolate <laughs> cuckoo clock trade conference for uh, bank managers? Great guesses. Brilliant guesses, but completely wrong. It sounded a bit like this. Pipes in Switzerland? No, no, no. Nearly. They're not bagpipes, those are illin pipes, a very Irish instrument. Uh, and bizarrely, they host an illin piping festival annually in this decidedly non Irish city. How could I not go? Particularly when German speakers hilariously called them Elbogen Dudelsach, which means elbow bagpipes. <laughs> so literal. So, as you can guess by me travelling nearly two hours for a taste of -of out-of-the-way Irish culture, I was feeling a little bit homesick. But more generally, I was clearly looking for something out of the Swiss norm. The well-ordered, wholesome lifestyle of finishing work at five sharp, vigorous outdoor hobbies and structured socialising. It can get a bit tiresome. It can be an isolating country at times, 
and I found it tricky, particularly as a foreigner, to integrate into Swiss life and really become part of the country. This is probably true for immigrants everywhere, but all I'll say is I do have some sympathy for the two little villages in our stories today. Anyway, I realised I would be hours early for the concert in Schaffhausen, so I scanned Google Maps to see what I could do with myself to pass the time. And I noticed something very odd. A border. Inside a border. A little cut-off blob of Germany floating just outside the city, sundered by about half a kilometre from the rest of the Federal Republic of Germany, to whom she belonged. Surrounded completely by the canton of Schaffhausen, and covering a stretch of the banks of the River Rhine. An exclave, that rare geographic oddity, right on my doorstep. I just had to visit, and so I hopped on a bus and was off. I've just gotten off the bus in the German village of Bussingen, which is completely surrounded by Switzerland on all sides. This is an unusual little place, full of quaint dramatically painted buildings but uh, I'm going to have to explore a bit more to see if there's anything more exciting to report it's um, it's very nice very rural and uh, very quiet near birds cheeping in the background and the sound of traffic from the pair of roads that run through the town, or more accurately, village. Only three minute walk from the bus stop and I'm already emerging in the field of countryside. And quiet housing developments. And indeed, I've just come across a sign that tells me I'm leaving Busingen. The town, or village, is characterised by very attractive houses of an older style, almost looking like um, barns from hundreds of years ago. In some cases, beautifully redecorated in bright colours and developed into modern businesses and homes, but in other cases, let fall into deprivation. An equal mix, I'd say, of pretty older style buildings and run-down buildings, all of which look occupied, but are definitely treated differently. The character of the town in its architecture is notably different from the neighbouring Swiss town, from where I came today, and speaks to the Austrian and German history of Bussingen. As I recorded my thoughts on Bussingen, Back in 2017, I was blissfully unaware of the details of its historical context. But thanks to the magic of editing and my two co-hosts, you won't have that same issue. So, how did this place come to be? Being on the right bank of the Rhine, Busingen has long been at the mercy of borders being where the Roman world ended and the Germanic barbarians began. In the late Middle Ages on, this area was under constant Austrian control, but not of any great significance. In 1693, however, this all changed, with international drama on the banks of the Rhine. These events are alleged to be the cause of this place staying stubbornly out of Swiss hands through the centuries. 
Eberhard in Thurn was the feudal lord of Busingen in the late 1600s. And while he'd been born in Schaffhausen, within the Swiss Confederation, his family were tied to the Austrian feudal system. The Reformation had taken a firm hold in this whole area, but Eberhard came into dispute with the Protestant pastor he had been assigned over the quality of his teaching. He threatened to call in the Catholic Bishop of Constance if it continued to disappoint. Accused of being a secret Catholic, his family turned on him and kidnapped him by coach, turning him over to the Swiss city council of Schaffhausen, with a death sentence expected. Austria, horrified at this breach of their sovereignty, demanded their vassal released, and meeting with reluctance and prevarications from the Confederate Swiss, started to turn up the pressure. They halted grain imports and seized lands and property along the Rhine. Six years later, Eberhard was released, but he had suffered greatly in the dungeons. He converted to Catholicism, presumably out of spite. It is said that the same spite stopped Austria selling Busingen to Schaffhausen in the 1700s, along with its neighbouring villages. During the Napoleonic era, European borders were being redrawn, and this Austrian exclave became part of the Kingdom of Württemberg under the 1805 Peace of Pressburg, as a way for Emperor Napoleon to reward his allies at the expense of the Habsburgs. Despite Swiss efforts and post-Napoleonic treaties, it remained part of what would become Baden-Württemberg, which in turn eventually became part of a unified Germany, taking the exclave with it. This uh, illogical status of the village has not gone unnoticed by its residents, with a referendum in 1918 leading to a 96% vote to become part of Switzerland. However, Switzerland could offer nothing suitable to exchange to Germany, and so a land swap was never done. During the Second World War, neutral Switzerland found itself in an awkward position of effectively cutting off two parts of the Third Reich. The solution was pragmatic. The border was closed, and any soldiers who needed to go on home leave to Busingen were required to surrender their weapons with the border guards upriver in Gallingen am Hochrhein, and the Swiss supplied them with greatcoats to hide their uniforms as they walked the 700 metres through Dorflinglen back into Germany. In 1967, a slowly negotiated treaty defined the exclave status. At the same time, West Germany surrendered the other tiny nearby exclave of Verenahof, home to just 11 citizens, in return for a similarly small amount of Swiss territory. Busingen, however, remained German. Night has fallen. Church bells are ringing in the village of Busingen, Germany. Passing along the reasonably busy main street are a mixture of Swiss and German registered cars. Euro and Frank both accepted, but I will say my Swiss mobile phone has told me that I'm roaming. So, where there's money to be made, the border exists. And a beautiful symbol of the strange nature of Bussingen. It's a Swiss telephone box. Right next to a German telephone box. Not sure when either were last used, but um, I suppose depends who you want to call. 
Since the treaty was signed, until today, Bussingen has been in the Swiss Liechtenstein Customs Union, and as such, EU economic regulations, other than those covered by Swiss EU treaties, do not apply there, as they do in the rest of Germany. And Swiss police are even allowed to enter the exclave and arrest German citizens to be brought to justice. The mist hangs low over the Rhine as I walk back across the border from Bussingen to Switzerland. As someone who's from an island country, I don't think the novelty of crossing land borders will ever quite wear off on me. They're fascinating because they're nothing. A line on a map, a sign by the side of the road saying, Willkommen in der Schweiz. And yet they mean so much in places where people find themselves on the wrong side. As the sun sets over this little pretty exclave of one of the richest countries in the EU within quite probably the richest country in Europe, one doesn't get the feeling that there's much injustice created by this border. Just uh, an administrative oversight. Um, something that requires footnotes in every European treaty to do with free movement of people. And a leftover thought from a period when German and Austrian princes and Habsburgs of every colour were carving up Europe between them. And sometimes leaving little pieces behind. So, there you have it. Switzerland's German exclave. But you were promised a second half of this geographical sandwich, and you won't be let down. Part 2 Casino d'Italia Now, I knew exclaves existed. This was an exciting breakthrough that had me looking suspiciously at maps, left, right and centre. Research told me that Bussingen wasn't alone in its status. Oh no, but rather, it had an Italian-speaking analogue, trapped between a valley and a lake in the south of Switzerland. But I never thought I'd get a chance to tick it off my list. The Italian-speaking part of the country is a real trek away from where I lived, all on the other side of the Alps, connected only by the longest railway tunnel in the world. More than two years passed without that changing. Luckily, though, fate would have it that a few months ago, Friends of mine moved to that part of Italy just across the border from Ticino, and I promised to visit. We spent a day exploring the Swiss city of Bellinzona, and then on our drive to Italy for a delicious dinner at much cheaper prices, I insisted we make a pit stop in aid of this geography nerd's curiosity. Needless to say, I have very understanding friends. The Italian exclave in Switzerland is called Campione d'Italia and it sits on the beautiful shores of Lake Lugano looking across at the city of that name and surrounded by the canton of Ticino. Ticino is the Italian-speaking canton of Switzerland and has at various times been associated with Milan and Como in the neighbouring country. The shorefront is dominated by a fluttering Italian tricolour, to remind you where you are, 
because otherwise with the Swiss registered cars and the telephone reception you get on the Swiss networks, it would be difficult to tell. In the first century BC, the Romans built a garrison nestled in the Alps called the Campellonium in order to defend against the Celtic barbarian Helveti. This is the origin of both the town and its name. In 777, Toto di Campione, the local Langobard lord, unbeknownst to him, caused all this mess with his will, sundering Campione's destiny from the surrounding canton of Ticino when he bequeathed his lands to the Archbishop of Milan and more specifically to the Abbey of Sant'Ambrogio, which would retain ownership over the land for more than a millennium until the revolutionary French took over Milan. Ticino, on the other hand, was subject to another power, the Bishop of Como, but under constant threat of invasion by the uppity Swiss cantons to the north, particularly Uri. Eventually, as thanks to the Swiss for fighting in the 16th century War of the Holy League, Pope Julian II assigned this Italian-speaking canton to the old Swiss confederation. The Abbey of Sant'Ambrogio, however, was not party to this deal, and so neither was Campione, and she became a political island. Even Napoleon didn't attach this floating municipality to either his Helvetic Republic or Cisalpine Republic puppet states, leaving the division during their short history. In 1800, Ticino offered Lombardy a trade of Campione for Indemini, but the residents voted against it. During the chaotic lead-up to Italian unification in 1848, the Campionese changed their tune, petitioning the Swiss to annex them, but famously neutral Switzerland had given up the annexation game and did not want to get involved in Italy's growing pains. While now unified Italy has two well-known enclaves, our old friend San Marino and the Vatican City, this is its only exclave. In 1933, Benito Mussolini's fascist government officially renamed Campione to Campione d'Italia to underscore their national ownership of this exclave. A massive ornamental gate was built on the only route into the town, declaring the Italianness of the exclave to all visitors, and it still marks the entry to the town today. Campione's defining feature throughout the 20th and early 21st centuries has been the casino, opened in 1917. Taking advantage of its lucrative location and tax breaks, including an exemption from EU value-added tax obligations, and has served as a chief employer as well as an important listening post for spies and diplomats alike. It played a role as a staging post for World War II operations in Italy by the precursor of the American CIA, while also becoming a harbour for political refugees, and eventually even Italian royalists, who were part of a Nazi puppet state during the last ebbs of fascism in Central Europe. After just over a century of opulence, however, the casino, a massive yellow brick edifice which dominates the waterfront, ceased trading in January 2019. Italian courts ordered its closure to investigate financial mismanagement that had left debts of 73 million euro piling up on the blackjack tables of a house that ought to always win. What had always been seen as a sure bet for the exclave is now fading, threatening the jobs of hundreds and the livelihoods of a whole community. The shuttered casino made for a very sorry sight during my visit. As I stand here, uh, banners are hanging over the railings saying Salviamo Campione, which seems to be a campaign for people to unite and uh, save their town. It's interesting to see an EU flag fluttering over 
what is ostensibly a Swiss lake. Um, and this is yet another interesting anomaly in the way that Europe broke down into its modern-day nation-states. The sun is going down over the Alps, but hopefully it rises again over Campione d'Italia's economic fortunes. As Frank Jobs put it in his New York Times article, Enclave Hunting in Switzerland, by a combination of historical accident, geopolitical inertia and bad timing, both Busigin and Campione d'Italia have remained marooned inside Switzerland. Over the centuries, coping mechanisms are developed, some of which are quite similar. No one really foresees any of this changing any time in the near future. These are obviously not the only exclaves in the world, and they are in truth some of the best examples of how exclaves can work successfully. As we've seen in previous episodes, borders can be tricky things at the best of times and artificially drawn lines and maps don't always reflect the realities of life on the ground. Coping mechanisms may be the best we can hope for in some of these situations, and we'll be profiling one or two of those in the season to come, which will begin very soon. As for my own border-hopping adventures, they'll be coming to a close for a while. This episode is my way of saying goodbye to Switzerland, and my three years as my own little Irish exclave in the canton of Bern. As you'll hear in the introductions to some of our Season 4 episodes, I've made my way home to Ireland. But you can rest assured that our internet-powered balloon will continue to venture around the globe in the months and years to come. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Auf Wiedersehen, and Arrivederci.